Well, Father, this morning we do long to be in that category of servants faithful, of those who have a growing love for you and for your Son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, we would be truthful and we would readily admit how easily our hearts are divided, how strong the pull of the flesh is, how attractive the world remains to us. And Father, as your redeemed ones this morning, we would take our Bibles now to sharpen ourselves, to let it do its perfect work, to allow the cleansing power of your word and the convicting power of your Holy Spirit to lead us in worship as listeners this morning, as those who would go and walk in obedience, as those who would bow in humility with a contrite heart and to tremble before you. So visit us, Lord, encourage us and strengthen us. We need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to return with me to that first book of your Bible, that book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, and chapter 41. I hope you're not too tired of me calling you to Genesis. Uh, Soon, as we celebrate the beginning of a new year, it will be two years that we began this study. I have enjoyed it immensely, and I trust that it has impacted your life. I'm going to miss Genesis. I am praying about where we are going in the future. It will probably be somewhere in the New Testament. As you turn to Genesis uh, 41, where we pick up again what we reviewed last week as a springboard for our message today, I have a sense to take a moment in our introduction and do something that I don't always do, and that is I want to tell you why I am preaching this message today. This message is somewhat of a a different kind of message. You could argue by the time the message is over that I am spiritualizing the passage. I trust that it will be within the realms of of biblical integrity. I have had this message on my mind for some time. As I have been reading Genesis and this portion of Scripture... In fact, um, let me give you the ABCs of why this message today. Letter A is the application of this story. The application of this story. That is, not necessarily the interpretation of it and the historical context of it and the meaning of it, but the application to our lives. I have been so struck with the reality that this passage, as we... um, told the story of Joseph coming out of the pit, standing before Pharaoh, and Joseph revealing through the power and working of God in him the dreams of Pharaoh, that they received a warning from God, they reacted to that warning, and they were prepared for the days to come. And in a sense, this is what I mean by spiritualizing the message today, I want to use that couch, that picture from Genesis 41, of the years of plenty as a time of preparation and even a time of warning for God's people for the times of want. I think that there is an application here. And I think that you will understand that further. I will expand upon that. The phrase that is coming to my mind, the title of our sermon is, Now is the Time, but the phrase that is repeated here this morning is the idea that you had better be ready. 
the first day of the eighth year is coming. And that came out a little bit last week, and I want to take that concept and expand it by way of application, letter A, application to our lives. Letter B, why I want to preach this message is that uh, the last week or so, I have been reminded anew and afresh of something that has always been very real to me, and that is letter B, the brevity of life. The phrase, you had better be ready. The brevity of life. When I was 17 years old, I helped zipper into a body bag another 17-year-old boy who had drowned in the Yukon River and place him in a boat and in the back of a pickup truck and then in the back of my uncle's airplane to fly him to the jet, to fly him home to his mother in Seattle, Washington. At age 17, as I looked at that boy, it hit me for the first time in my young adult life that eternity is this far away. That's it. It's right here. And this week I have, um, just in my pastoral work, been reminded of that in numerous ways, not the least of which is being at the bedside of one of our saints who has been told this week, you have six months to live. You had better be ready, my friend. There is a season in your life of preparation. There is a season in your life that God gives you to be alert and to be awake and to harvest. And then there is the first day of the eighth year. I was on the phone yesterday with a man, a father that I know very well for many years, who was awakened early in the morning Thursday night that his 31-year-old son was shot and killed trying to make an arrest on some poachers this week. I sat at a kitchen table yesterday with a man who is stunned and still in shock who, while on a, you might say, a date evening, doing something that they had done often, his wife was killed instantly. He can't believe it. 44 years of age. You had better be ready. A, the application of Scripture has been strong in me on this passage. B, the brevity of life is such a reality, you had better be ready. And then C, is current events. Now, I want to be careful here. I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. I also recognize that there are eras of time in history past where you can easily argue that the times were much more dramatically difficult, sinful, and serious, even at a worldwide scale than they are right now. However... In my life of now one half of a century, I have never seen a time where as we enjoy a continuing season of incredible wealth, it's undeniable. We still do what we want to do. We buy what we want to buy. We go where we want to go. That we are clearly, clearly, on the verge of financial meltdown in the United States. It seems to me it has to be unavoidable. 
Ron Blue, who is now with the Lord, wrote a book some years ago at the end of the 80s warning that there was a coming economic earthquake. And he argued that it was unavoidable with the decisions that our leadership have been making. And I would say that that has increased only a hundredfold. And the decision making that has gone on is incredibly ignorant when it comes to the stability of a nation and its economics. And so you you have to believe that we cannot sustain ourselves with a credit card, both in the home front and on the national front. And Proverbs 22, verse 7 is clear, and it's true. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. And it is clear that the United States is in an incredible bondage to its servants, is servants to its masters. And so there has to be change coming. You had better get ready. We are in a time of great harvest right now. We have potential wealth. We had better be prepared for financial meltdown. Again, let me say, I want to be careful not to sound like some kind of a prophet. And God has not called me to shave half my head and lay down in the middle of the street for 40 days and warn the nation. But it certainly seems like there is a boiling pot tipping from the north. Secondly, I have never in my half a century of life seen the, religion, the potential for religious persecution like we see now. There has been in the last few years, 10 years or so, a tsunami wave of emergence globally of Islam. And if you think that's not significant, you are, your head is in the sand. And if you think the way our political leaders posture with Islamic leaders and that Islam is a religion of faith, of good people that has been taken hostage by wicked people, you don't know anything about Islam. And if you think that it's going away, you also don't understand the current wave that is going around our world. There is change coming. You had better be ready both in the form of financial meltdown and in the form of religious persecution. Thirdly, this is only under my letter C, which is only under my introduction. I haven't started preaching yet. (laughs) In my lifetime, I have observed in the last few years, and I know that we get this stuff funneled into us now on every front, Every electronic device under the sun has the latest event right here in our face, and so that magnifies these things. But would you agree with me that in the last 10 years or so, there has to, it has to be documentable. I have not taken time to do that. That there is more worldwide cataclysmic chaos going on. I mean, I heard on the news this week that dengue, I don't even know how to say it, dengue fever is now present in Miami, and they thought that that never would hit the United States again in any form. And you have these weird diseases that are sweeping through. You have the entire uh, capital city of the broken nation of Haiti now with cholera sweeping through it. We have, we have in, in much the same way of like a 1918 flu epidemic, The potential, even in our modern times where we think we have everything under control, these sweeping, devastating, catastrophic, catastrophic events where where 
tens and hundreds and even millions of people die. We see people uh, in, in, in real time drowning because of floods from rains where they're wiping out entire cities. We see incredible earthquake chaos. Does this remind you of anything? In Matthew 24, our Lord Jesus couldn't have made it any clearer that in the last days, there will be an increase of the chaos and the destruction of catastrophic worldwide geocentric events. And he called it the birth pangs. Could go on for a while. And... um, I would argue, uh, you could argue, if you're a historian, clearly that, as I said, there are other eras of history where incredibly destructive events took place, not the least of which was in the mid-1940s and World War II. What an incredible, globally impacting event it was. And who even knows how many millions of people were slaughtered by, by wicked kings not even counting the battlefields and the destruction of cities and so forth and so on. And so that's what's been in my mind. With this phrase, you had better be ready. And, and I just had a sense of this in, a renewed sense of this in my study of the story of Joseph. And so to use as a foundation and a springboard for our message today, I want to challenge us on three dangers of living in the season of plenty. Three dangers that come that are innate with living in the season of plenty. Let's remind ourselves of the response of Joseph and Pharaoh. It is interesting that Pharaoh believed God, didn't he? Pharaoh, a polytheist, believed that Whatever, whoever this God was that interpreted his dream through Joseph, he knew what he was talking about. Evidently, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to truth and he recognized in Joseph that he'd better believe this young man and that there were seven years of plenty that would be followed by seven years of famine. We've told the story over and over. Let's just read, starting with verse 46 in chapter 41 of Genesis. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. Genesis 41, 47 now. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. And Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt... And he stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. So they had regional and locally administrated granaries with local people controlling the food. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. And it was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. In my mind, as I spiritualize this passage and draw application to it, from it, I see the United States there. I see a country that has been so blessed that you cannot even calculate the wealth that potentially we have or have had or could have stored up. Before the years of famine came, 
verse 50. Two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. Joseph, remembering his God, named his firstborn Manasseh. And he said, it is because Elohim has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim. And he said, it is because Elohim has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And then verse 53, here it is. And the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end. There it is. But Joseph was ready, and that's what the rest of the passage gives account of. The seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. There was also famine in all of the other lands. So this was an unusual, evidently drought-induced famine. It's hard to build a case where there would be any other way that famine could hit globally at this time than significant drought. It is an interesting concept because Egypt received its water from largely irrigation out of the Nile. However, it has to rain somewhere for the river to have water. And uh, generally, these things didn't all happen at the same time, but evidently, uh, basically, the known world of that day dried up. And as it dried up, nothing would grow. You have agri-centered societies and economies. And so when you can't grow corn... You can't feed cows, and when you can't feed cows, you can't milk cows, and when you can't milk cows, you can't grow calves, and when you can't grow calves, you can't have hamburger. Pretty soon, you don't even have enough leather to make shoes. It is a domino effect. Joseph was ready, and Joseph continues to be elevated, and God's hand is upon him as we see that Pharaoh then tells the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do whatever he says. Incredible, isn't it? And what impresses me about Joseph is the integrity of his spiritual leadership in a pagan foreign land where he listened to God, he obeyed God, and he implemented everything through the wisdom of God. Now, let's imagine the seven years of plenty. You see, living with plenty is not an easy thing. That's our problem. That's why this message is on my mind. Let me say this, though, that this is not a call for self-induced poverty. I believe very much it is biblical to be industrious, that it is biblical to, to create. It is, it is biblical to, to generate capital. It is biblical to develop ourselves. God put that in us. Responsible people will do that. And one who does not provide for his home, his family, or his community is worse than an infidel. However, when the granaries are so filled that you can't even keep record of it, it's difficult to stay on course, isn't it? So now three dangers of living in a season of plenty. To do this, I want to give the danger... And I want to illustrate that danger with a biblical account in our New Testaments. The first uh, illustration will be a warning from a wealthy church. The second illustration of the second danger will be a wake-up call from a wandering son. 
And the third illustration from the third danger illustrated biblically will be the wasted life of a working man. And I want to show you how living with plenty impacted each of these circumstances. And it is the reality of of the, the potential of unlimited wealth. And the sense, the overriding sense that creeps in that it will always be this way. And that we have created this. And that we are in control. I have been so impacted in my thinking as well how Pharaoh had absolutely no idea that he had no control, essentially. And that God was entirely and completely in control. And I suspect that it is absolutely the same today. Danger number one of living in the season of plenty. Danger number one is that the season of plenty creates a culture of comfort which leads to complacency. Living in the season of plenty has a danger, and the first danger I would recognize is that it creates a culture of comfort which leads to complacency. This complacency then undermines self-discipline and spiritual maturity. Let's turn in our Bibles to an illustration of this point, this concept of comfort which leads to complacency, which undermines spiritual maturity by looking at a letter to a church, a warning to a wealthy church, and that is the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Will you turn there with me, please, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and let's begin with verse 14. The church at Laodicea is unlike... The other six churches in which it is listed in the letters to the seven churches in the beginning of our, our book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is different in that it is the one church of the seven that received no commendation. All of the churches, their warning and their confrontation by Jesus And picture Jesus coming in and walking among the churches. And he's visiting these seven real churches led by seven real pastors. And it's as though Jesus is walking among them and he's saying, I see this about you. You love the word of God. And you are faithful to true doctrine or sound doctrine. But I want you to know this. I'm warning you sexual immorality has crept into the church and you better get rid of it. Every one of the churches have, in essence, a pattern like that. There is one church that basically has no warning. The church at Philadelphia. It is followed by the church at Laodicea that has no commendation. He doesn't start with, I see this in you and I really affirm that. There's no affirmation. There is only condemnation and warning. And the reason is, is that they are the wealthiest of all the churches. Remember we said that last week? That when, when the silos are filled and our wallets are fat, who needs God, right? It's so easy to be self-reliant. Let's read here quickly about the church at Laodicea. To the angel of the church at Laodicea, verse 14, chapter 3, the revelation of Jesus Christ. These are the words of the Amen. That would be Jesus, a name for him, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Well, that's a great phrase. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, I am done with you. It's over. I've had enough. You say, I am rich, and I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. You see, the years of plenty were the years in the context of the Laodicean church. They lived in the years of plenty. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those who I'm... Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The church at Laodicea didn't even know, didn't even recognize the absence of the presence of Christ among them. They were so satisfied with what they were and what they had in their wealth. To him who overcomes this, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. John, in revealing this revelation in the Lord Jesus, as he gives this, he says things that that the Laodiceans would understand immediately the parallel and the word picture. First of all is this this condemnation of their lukewarmness, and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You need to understand that Laodicea was a city that was fed by aqueducts from other cities, namely Hierapolis. And at Hierapolis, they were known for their hot springs. Nearby in the higher country was Colossae, and they were known for their cool springs of water. So at either place, you could get really piping hot water coming out of the ground, or you could get at the other city cool water, nice, refreshing spring water coming out of the ground. But at Laodicea, it came through pipes, in essence, and by the time it got there, it was tepid, it was lukewarm. They understood immediately. They lived with lukewarm water. And he says, I wish you would at least be hot or cold, both of which are good. It doesn't, one doesn't mean all the way saved or all the way lost. Be something. Just don't be a compromise. I don't believe that. I believe the idea here is that you would be genuine, be all, rather than this lukewarm nothingness. So they understood that word picture right away. He then puts his finger right on the fact. says, but, and, and you say you are rich because you have acquired wealth and you do not need a thing. And so evidently it was common for them to talk about the fact that they didn't need anything. They were really, really wealthy, really well-to-do. There were really no needs among them. They could take care of themselves. And you have to understand that Laodicea was known for three things in their city. One was the commerce, which led to the banking. And so he references their gold. I wish you would get some real gold that has been refined in the fire. That is purified and holy, not corrupt mammon of the world. So they were known for their banks and their money exchange. They were known also for their wool. They had a rich black wool that created a very popular and sought out garment 
that was black. So they wore black clothing a lot. And he says, I wish you'd trade in your clothes and get a white garment that's been purified. And thirdly, they were known for an eye salve that they made there that was evidently an actual remedy to some eye problem. And it was known by all of them. And that's why he says, right down the line, I, I, you say you're rich and don't need a thing, but I'm telling you, trade in your gold and get gold that's been refined by fire. That gold's not doing you any good. So that you can become rich, really rich. You're not rich, you're poor even though you got a lot of money. And then white clothes to wear, that's symbolic of, of purification. It's symbolic of a holy people. It's symbolic of those who stand out to those who are wearing black clothing. So that you can then cover your shameful nakedness. You're so impressed by this black wool suit clothing that you guys produce and that the whole world wants and that you market everywhere. And really, you're standing around naked, spiritually speaking. And thirdly, this eye salve, he said, put the salve on your eyes so that you can see. Wake up, open your eyes, look around. I'm right here knocking on your door. If you'll just open the door, I'll come in and I'll minister among you. What a great challenge. What a great challenge for the wealthy, isn't it? Do you remember what Jesus said about the wealthy? He said, it is so difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember the rich young man that came running to Jesus and fell on his knees and said, I've kept all the commandments? But he turned away sad. Why? Because he had great wealth. Right? All right. In the season of plenty, it is easy to adopt a culture of comfort, which then leads to complacency, which then produces a lack of spirituality. And spiritual maturity. A warning from a wealthy church. Listen, let's just stop and make application here. We're wealthy, aren't we? Our children can crank out 2,500 bucks from change. We're wealthy. This is a season of plenty. Don't we need to see this season as a great opportunity to resource the church around the world? A great opportunity to use our wealth for the kingdom of God? If lives are on the line, if heaven is real and hell is real, and it is, what a great opportunity we have. But we're complacent because we love comfort. We don't like to take up our cross and follow him. What a challenge to the wealthy church. Let's move on to danger number two. Danger number two is that the season of plenty creates a climate of extravagance which leads to waste. Danger number two of living in the season of plenty is that it creates a climate of extravagance which leads to waste. And this undermines servanthood and stewardship of God's people. This undermines our willingness to serve and to be careful stewards. In other words, we have it, so we spend it. And we have so much of it that it is worthless to us. We waste it. Just because we have a whole lot of it doesn't mean you waste it. It's like feeding your cats and letting the cat food lay all over the floor and all over the ground because you have a big bag of it. Just because you have a lot of it doesn't mean we waste it. 
doesn't make what fell on the ground less valuable. Let's turn to Luke's gospel in chapter 12 now, and let's remind ourselves through an illustration of this concept in the wasted life, excuse me, in the wake-up call from a wandering son. And you know all of these stories, even Laodicea well. I doubt any of this is new information to most of you, um, but I present it in the, in the form of a challenge that we recognize what is happening around us in the sense of a warning message. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 15, we have the parable of the lost son. It's a long parable. It is one, a part of a trilogy of three parables that illustrate essentially the same thing with a little different emphasis, the parable of the lost sheep, then the lost coin, and then the lost son. I want us just to read the first few verses of the wandering son story and recognize that there is a wake-up call here Beginning with verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country. Now look, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. Interesting, the famine parallel. And he began to be in need. You see, there was a season of plenty. He wasted the season of plenty. And then he entered the season of famine in want. And he hit rock bottom, of course. And you know the rest of the stories. Mucking hogs and trying to reach in among their slop to pull out an apple core or something to get some bite of nourishment picking out kernels of corn or something out of their slop so that he could chew on it in some self-made cornmeal mush in in the cheek of his mouth. He wasted the plenty years. I want you to notice three things that characterize this man. First of all, it is a lack of restraint. A lack of restraint. Because of the plenty years, this climate of extravagance, he... He, ha- he lived in a totally fiscally undisciplined manner. Does that remind you of another culture that you know anywhere? He had total lack of restraint. It was pleasure-driven spending. Do I have to say it out loud? That has to stop among us. I don't need to buy something just because I want it or it makes me feel good. We are wasting our resources and we, end, we are in a season of extravagance in the church where we buy needless things because we want them and it makes us feel good. And we waste and it is without restraint we squander God's resources. Secondly, he lived with a complete lack of responsibility. A complete lack of responsibility. He had no sense of stewardship of the money that was his that really wasn't his. Where did this money come from? Where did this money come from? He went up to his dad and in his 19-year-old apex of idiocy mindset, looks at his dad and says, why don't you die and give me the inheritance? His dad says, tell you what. Let's, let's spare the die part and I'll just write you a check for your inheritance and you can go. What an arrogant, ignorant, unappreciative, slob son. And then he goes and he acts like it was his. And he is totally irresponsible. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever produced their own wealth? Where does it come from? 
Everything we have as God's people is whose? It's God's. What business do we have going around spending God's money like drunken sailors? Being totally irresponsible just because everybody else does it. It's incredible, isn't it? The mindset that we have of extravagance which leads to utter wastefulness. Thirdly, you have to see in this story a complete opposite of the story of Joseph where there is a total lack of reserve. A total lack of reserve. He didn't save a dime. Joseph had the wisdom to put aside 20% of the increase. 20%. And to hold it, to use it, to be a careful steward of it because of the first day of the eighth year. It is coming. Isn't it amazing that the statistics show that in a people group, Americans at large, who have produced more wealth than almost any other culture on earth at any other time, basically, and there is almost essentially, as a practical manner of speaking, zero savings. In fact, there is debt. The one redeeming feature about this punk kid is that he didn't have a credit card. So when he used up his cash, he didn't then run up his consumer debt. What are we thinking? Do we think there's always just going to be more? Do we think that Walmart's always just going to have stuff on sale? And just because it's a good buy, do I need to buy it? What is wrong with us? Whose money is this? And who are we to not recognize, being warned in Scripture, that the day of plenty is going to end, and then there's going to be a day of need. And then who's going to take care of us? The government? If you're counting on that, you really, really, really don't understand what's happening. And so we have illustrated in the life of this wandering son what happens in a climate of extravagance that always leads to waste, which undermines our servant's heart and our stewardship. We think it's ours. We think it'll never end. Now, finally, the third danger. The first danger was a culture of comfort which leads to complacency. The second danger, a climate of extravagance which leads to waste. The third danger of living in the plenty years is that it creates an illusion of strength, which leads to self-reliance. It creates an illusion of strength, which leads to self-reliance. This undermines my felt need for a Savior. This undermines my felt need for a Savior. We have this illustrated, if you'll just turn the page, to another very familiar story, to the wasted life of a working man in Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse, let's just jump in at verse 15. Verse 15 of Luke 12. I want you to listen very closely the next couple minutes as we wrap up this message on this point. This is very important. Then he said to him, that would be Jesus, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Luke 12, 15. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. 
And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store up my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Listen, this guy worked hard, didn't he? He's a good man. He worked hard. He did what he was supposed to do. He did what his daddy taught him to do. Take that piece of ground and make something out of it. And then when you fill up the silo, build another silo. Do it right. He was was industrious. He showed initiative. He had integrity about his work. He was incredibly productive. But in his season of plenty, he decided that he was the boss. He decided that he was strong. He decided that he was the captain of his own soul. He decided that he was the one in charge of his own destiny. He's the one who is going to live a long life and go to Florida and pick up seashells. And the passage said, but God said to him, you fool, this very knife, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? What are you doing? What are you doing? You don't know when it's going to happen for you and it's over. You're just out for dinner. You're just on your way home from Martinsburg. Blam! It's over. We're not strong. We're not in charge. We are weak vessels. Our days are written in His book. We have been incredibly blessed as stewards of an incredible volume of resources. But that doesn't mean we're in control. We have to be humble servants, holding loosely to these things, living wisely with these things, that God would be glorified through us and through our wealth and that we would be making the largest impact possible, resourcing the gospel around the world. Because the day comes, the first day of the eighth year comes, and bam, you're standing before the Lord, and he says, where's all your stuff, Mr. Big Businessman? Right? And then he stands before the Lord, and he says, well, down there, I was a big cheese. Had the biggest blue harvest store silos around. I guess those have kind of run their course. That's not a big deal anymore. Had the biggest open cement bunkers in the world. Big John Deere tractors. You don't understand. Tonight's your night. And your heart just ticked its last beat. And as Jesus said in Matthew 22, what good is it, my buddy? What good is it for you to have gained the whole world to lose your soul? Do you realize how brief this life is? Do you realize that we have this life to prepare for eternity? We have the season now to prepare for the season then. We're in a season of plenty. A word to the wise is, get ready for the season of want. You're in the season of spiritual opportunity now. The day is coming when it's over. And there's no more opportunity. I was thinking about Sam Erickson. And he's hoping to come back to church, and he might. I hope he does. We call him Lazarus. He's also in his delirium, been calling himself Matt Dillon. (laughs) I was thinking about Sam, that I really don't think that he knew when the last day was that he came to church. And you walk out the door and say, see you next week. 
Listen, it's like there's a great big clock ticking, isn't it? A great big clock is ticking. And you don't know when it's going to tick-tock the last time for you. Are you ready to enter heaven? Or will you be eternally condemned by your sinfulness because you have rejected the substitute Lamb of God who came to take your place on the cross, who shed his blood for the remission of sin so that people like us who have this major sin problem, unable of keeping God's law, broken in our sinfulness, rebellious in our hearts, given over to self-pleasure, self-rule and reign, have you come before God, the creator of all, Elohim, and bow before him and say, I accept what you did for me out of your kindness and love when you put your son on the cross as a substitute for me. And I recognize that when his blood was shed, your, your holy justice was satisfied once and for all. And I admit my sinfulness and I receive from you the forgiveness of sin and the salvation of my soul by no merit or work of my only, but own, but only by what Jesus did for me on the cross. Can you say that's true for you? You have acknowledged God as your heavenly father, Jesus Christ, your substitute as your savior from your sin. You see, otherwise you have to pay yourself. That's what I mean by substitute. But Jesus came in your place out of the love and kindness of God. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him doesn't have to perish, but has everlasting life. You have the season of spiritual opportunity right now to prepare for the season of eternity. You have the season of the temporal to prepare for the season of forever. It matters. It matters. Let's bow in prayer. I want you to listen closely as we wrap up. And you need to ask yourself right now, if my clock ticks its last tick, and if this is my last service in this church, and God, like the rich fool, calls me home and says, tonight is your night, and you stand before him, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you stand before him just, cleansed by the blood of Christ, with a pure white robe on, or do you stand before him with the old black wool robes of Laodicea, your sinfulness, Representing yourself before God instead of letting Jesus represent you. My friend, the Bible says that now is the time, that today is the day of salvation, that this is the day, and that the reason that the next season hasn't started yet is only out of the love and patience of God so that people will be saved. But the day is coming. The first day of the eighth year is coming. Are you ready? Can you say, God, I admit my sinfulness and I believe that Jesus stood in my place and was on the cross for me and I accept the forgiveness of sin that is through the blood of Christ for my sin and I confess Jesus as my Savior today. That's something only you can do as the Spirit of God opens your mind to these truths and brings conviction to your heart, then you 
Yield yourself over to that. And you accept his free salvation. And you become a new creation in Christ. We're going to sing a hymn in just a minute. If you've prayed that prayer, if you want to, and you've cried out to God for salvation, or if you want to come forward and meet with a counselor, you get out of your chair and you come forward. You make sure that today you're ready for the last tick of your clock. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives and thank you for what a privileged season of life that we find ourselves living within. And, and so, Lord, help us to take advantage of this day of salvation, this day of plenty, and use it to resource ourselves for eternity. Move among us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.